0: Section 14 of The Glories of Ireland. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kate Follis The Glories of Ireland. Edited by Joseph Dunn and P.J. Lennox. The Fighting Race, Part 1 by joseph i c clark president american irish historical society part one the fighting race at home war was the ruling passion of this people says mcgagan meaning the milesians who were the last of the peoples that overran ancient ireland up to the coming of christ how many races had preceded them remains an enigma of history not profitable to examine here but whoever they were or in what succession they arrived they must like all migrating people have been prepared to establish themselves at the point of the spear and the edge of the sword two races certainly were mingled in the ancient irish the fair or auburn-haired with blue eyes and the dark-haired with eyes of grey or brown the milesians appear to have reached ireland through spain they came swiftly to power more than a thousand years before our lord and divided the country into four provinces or kingdoms with an audrey or high king ruling all in a loose way as to service taxes and allegiance the economic life was almost entirely pastoral riches were counted in herds of cattle robustness of frame vehemence of passion elevated imagination dr leland says signalized this people robust they became athletic and vigorous and excelled in the use of deadly weapons passionate they easily went from litigation to blows imaginative They leaned toward poetry and song and were strong for whatever religion they practiced. The latter was a polytheism brought close to the people through the druids. Some stone weapons were doubtless still used. They had also brazen or bronze swords and spears, axes, and maces of various alloys of copper and tin. Socially, they remained tribal heads of tribes were petty kings each with his stronghold of a primitive character each with his tribal warriors bards harpers and druids and the whole male population more or less ready to take part in war THE GREAT HEROES WHOSE NAMES HAVE COME DOWN TO US, SUCH AS FINN, SON OF Kual, AND COOKOON, WERE REARED IN A SCHOOL OF ARMS. BRAVERY WAS THE SIGN OF TRUE MANHOOD. A LAW OF CHIVALRY MODERATED THE EXCESS OF COMBAT. A TRAINED MILITIA, THE Fiana, GAVE CHARACTER TO AN ERA. THE KNIGHTS OF THE RED BRANCH WERE THE DISTINGUISHING ORDER OF chevaliers. THE SONGS OF THE BARDS WERE SONGS OF BATTLE. The great Irish epic of antiquity was the Tain Kilga, or Coolie Cattle Raid, and it is full of combats and feats of strength and prowess. High character meant high pride, always ready to give account of itself and strike for its ideals. Irritable and bold, as one historian has it, they were jealous and quick to anger, but light-hearted laughter came easily to the lips of the ancient Irish they worked cheerfully prayed fervently to their gods loved their women and children devotedly clung passionately to their clan and fought at the call with alacrity nothing it will be seen could be further from the minds of such a people than submission to what they deemed injustice the habit of a proud freedom was ingrained their little island of thirty-two thousand square miles in the atlantic ocean the outpost of europe lay isolated save for occasional forays to and from the coasts of scotland and england the roman invasions of western europe never reached it england the romans overran but never scotland or ireland self-contained ireland developed a civilization peculiarly its own the product of an intense imaginative fighting race war was not constant among them by any means and occupied only small portions of the island at a time but since the bard's best work was war songs and war histories with much braggadocio doubtless intermixed a different impression might prevail half of their kings may have been killed in broil or battle and yet great wars were few it is undoubted that Scotic, that is irish invasion and immigration peopled the western shores of scotland and gave a name to the country in the first centuries of the christian era they were the men who with the picts fought the romans at the wall of severus the britons it will be remembered enervated by roman dominance had failed to defend their border when rome first withdrew her legions at this time too began the first appearance of ireland as a power on the sea in the fourth century the high king neil of the hostages commanding a large fleet of war galleys invaded scotland ravished the english coasts and conquered armorica brittany penetrating as far as the banks of the loire where according to the legend he was slain by an arrow shot by one of his own men one of the captives he brought from abroad on one of his early expeditions was a youth named patrick afterwards to be the apostle of ireland neil's nephew dahi also ardry was a great sea-king he invaded england crossed to gaul and marched as far as the alps where he was killed by lightning he was the last pagan king of ireland In perhaps a score of years after the death of Dahi, all Ireland had been converted to Christianity, and its old religion of a thousand years buried so deep that scholars find the greatest difficulty in recovering anything about it. This conservative, obstinate, jealous people overturned its pagan altars in a night, and ever since has never put into anything else the devotion soul and body of its sacrifices for religion christianity profoundly modified irish life softened manners and stimulated learning not that the fighting propensities were obliterated there were indeed many long and peaceful reigns but the historians record neat little wars seductive forays and hostings to use the new old word to the heart's content the irish character remained fixed in its essentials but under the influence of religious enthusiasm ireland progressed and prospered in the arts of peace it would undoubtedly have shared the full progress of western europe from this time on but for its insularity hitherto its protection it was now to be its downfall a hostile power was growing of which it knew nothing the norsemen the hardy vikings of norway sweden and denmark had become a nation of pirates undaunted fighters and able mariners they built their shapely long ships and galleys of the northern pine and oak and swept heartily down on the coasts of england ireland france spain and italy and the lands of the levant surprising massacring plundering in france normandy in england and lastly in ireland they planted colonies their greatest success was in england which they conquered canute becoming king their greatest battles and final defeat were in ireland from the end of the eighth century to the beginning of the eleventh the four shores of erin were attacked in turn and sometimes altogether by successive fleets of the norsemen the waters that had been ireland's protection now became the high roads of the invaders by the river shannon they pushed their conquests into the heart of the country dublin bay waterford harbour belfast lock and the cove of cork offered shelter to their vessels they established themselves in dublin and raided the country around churches and monasteries were sacked and burned to the end these norsemen were robbers rather than settlers to these onslaughts by the myriad wasps of the northern seas again and again renewed the irish responded manfully in eight hundred twelve they drove off the invaders with great slaughter only to find fresh hordes descending a year or two later in the tenth century turgesius the danish leader called himself monarch of ireland but he was driven out by the irish king malachi the great effort which really broke the danish power forever in ireland was at the battle of clontarf on dublin bay good friday one thousand fourteen when king brian beru at the head of thirty thousand men utterly defeated the danes of dublin and the danes of oversea fragments of the northmen remained all over ireland but henceforth they gradually merged with the irish people adding a notable element to its blood one of the most grievous chapters of irish history the period of norse invasion literally shines with irish valor and tenacity undimmed through six fighting generations as plowden says ireland stands conspicuous among the nations of the universe a solitary instance in which neither the destructive hand of time nor the devastating arm of oppression nor the widest variety of changes in the political system of government could alter or subdue much less wholly extinguish the national genius spirit and character of its inhabitants this is true not only of the danish wars which ended nine hundred years ago but of many a dreadful century since and to this very day now followed a troubled period ireland weakened by loss of blood and treasure its government failing of authority through the defects of its virtues It was inevitable, sooner or later, that England, as it became consolidated after its conquest by William the Norman, should turn greedy eyes on the fair land across the Irish Sea. It was in 1169 that Strongbow, Richard, Earl of Pembroke, came from England at the invitation of a discontented Irish chieftain, and began the conquest of Ireland three years later came henry the second with more troops and a papal bull after a campaign in leinster he set himself up as overlord of ireland and then returned to london it was the beginning only an english lord deputy ruled the pale or portion of ireland that england held more or less securely and from that vantage ground made spasmodic war upon the rest of ireland and was forever warred on in large attacks and small by irish chieftains the irish were the fighting race now if ever without hope of outside assistance facing a foe ever reinforced from a stronger richer more fully organized country nothing but their stubborn character and their fighting genius kept them in the field and century out and century in they stayed holding back the foreign foe four hundred years it is worthy of note that it was the norman english racial cousins as it were of the norsemen who first wrought at the english conquest of ireland when some of these were seated in irish places of pride when a butler was made earl of ormond and a fitzgerald earl of Kildare, it was soon seen that they were merging rapidly in the irish mass becoming as it was said more irish than the irish themselves many were the individual heroic efforts to strike down the english power here and there small irish chiefs accepted the english rule offsetting the norman irish families who at times were loyal and at times rebel the state of war became continuous and internecine but three-fourths of ireland remained unconquered the idea of a united ireland against england had however been lost except in a few exalted and a few desperate breasts. a gleam of hope came in thirteen hundred sixteen when two years after the great defeat of england by the scotch under robert the bruce at bannockburn edward the victor king's brother came at the invitation of the northern irish to ireland with six thousand scots landing near carrickfergus he was proclaimed king of ireland by the irish who joined him battle after battle was won by the allies edward was a brilliant soldier lacking however the prudence of his great brother robert the story of his two years of fighting ravaging and slaying is hard at this distance to reconcile with intelligible strategy in the end in thirteen hundred eighteen the gallant scott fell in battle near dundalk losing at the same time two-thirds of his army for two years scott and irish had fought victoriously side by side that is the fact of moment that comes out of this dark period the following century like that which had gone before was full of fighting in thirteen hundred ninety nine on richard ii's second visit to ireland he met fierce opposition from the irish sepps macmorrow fighting harassing the king's army from the shelter of the wicklow woods fairly drove the king to dublin the sanguinary wars of the roses that thirty years struggle for the crown of england between the royal houses of york and lancaster fourteen hundred fifty five to fourteen hundred eighty five gave ireland a long opportunity which however she was too weak to turn to advantage but fighting between irish and english went on just the same now in one province now in another in the reign of henry the eighth a revolt against england started within the pale itself when lord thomas fitzgerald known as silken thomas went before the council in dublin and publicly renounced his allegiance he took the field a brave striking figure in protest against the king's bad faith in dealing with his father the earl of kildare at one time it looked as if the rebellion it was the first real irish rebellion would prosper lord thomas made combinations with irish chieftains in the north and west and was victor in several engagements he finally surrendered with assurances of pardon but as in many similar cases was treacherously sent a prisoner to london where he was executed Queen Mary's reign was one of comparative quiet in Ireland. Her policy towards the Catholics was held to be of good augury for Ireland. The English garrison was reduced with impunity to five hundred foot and a few horse, but another and darker day came with Elizabeth her coming to the throne together with her fanatic devotion to the reformation and an equal hatred of the old religion and all who clung to it ushered in for ireland two and a half centuries of almost unbroken misfortune you cannot make people over Some may take their opinions with their interest. Others prefer to die rather than surrender theirs and glory in the sacrifice. The proclamations of Elizabeth had no persuasion in them for the Irish. Her proscriptions were only another English sword at Ireland's throat. The disdain of the Irish maddened her. During her long reign, one campaign after another was launched against them always fresh soldier hordes came pouring in under able commanders and marched forth from the pale generally to return shattered and worn down by constant harrying sometimes utterly defeated with great slaughter so of henry Sidney's campaign and so of the ill-fated essex Ulster, the stronghold of the O'Neills and the O'Donnells, remained unconquered down to the last years of Elizabeth's reign, although most of the greater battles were fought there. In Hugh O'Neill, Earl of Tyrone, and Red Hugh O'Donnell, Prince of Tyrconnell, Ireland had two really great soldiers on her side the bravery generalship prudence and strategy of o'neill were worthy of all praise and red hugh fell little short of his great compatriot in battle after battle for twenty years they defeated the english with slaughter ireland if more and more devastated by campaigns and forays became the grave of tens of thousands of english soldiers and scores of high reputations writing from cork the earl of essex after a disastrous march through leinster and munster says i am confined in cork but still i have been unsuccessful my undertakings have been attended with misfortune the irish are stronger and handle their arms with more skill than our people they differ from us also in point of discipline they likewise avoid pitched battles where order must be observed and prefer skirmishes and petty warfare and are obstinately opposed to the english government they did not like attacking or defending fortified places he also believed it was only his experience the campaigns of shane o'neill a bold but ill-balanced warrior were full of such attacks but one potent cause for irish reluctance to make sieges a strong point of their strategy was that the strongest fortresses were on the sea an inexhaustible powerful enemy who held the sea was not in the end to be denied on sea or land but the irish in stubborn despair or supreme indifference to fate fought on religious rancour was added to racial hate most of the english settlers or garrison as they came to be called had become protestants at the royal order ruin perched upon ireland's hills and made a wilderness of her fertile valleys the irish chieftains with their faithful followers moved from place to place in woods and hollows of the hills english colonists were settled on confiscated lands and were harried by those who had been driven from their homes it was war among graves at last o'neill made composition with the government when all was lost in the field but the passionate irish resolve never to submit still stalked like a ghost as if it could not perish when elizabeth died it was thought that better things were coming to ireland with james the the son of mary queen of scots nothing of the kind that curiously minded creature at once made an ingenuous proclamation whereas his majesty was informed that his subjects of ireland had been deceived by a false report that his majesty was disposed to allow them liberty of conscience and the free choice of religion now etc fresh transplanting of english and scotch settlers on the lands of the irish was the gist of his answer to the false reports so again the war of surprise ambush raid and foray went on in a hundred places at once but the result was that the english power was even more firmly seated than before in the time of charles I there were terrible slaughters both of protestants and catholics patriotism and loyalty as moving causes had disappeared but religion fiercely took their place with cromwell the religious persecution took on an apocalyptic note of massacre but the irish were still showing that they were there with arms in their hands the names of owen rowe o'neill and his splendid victory in sixteen hundred forty six at bemburb over the english and scotch where he slew more than three thousand men and of another hugh o'neill who made such a brilliant defence at clonmel against cromwell shine brightly out of the darkness but ireland parcelled out among the victors was always the weaker after every campaign waves of war swept over her she became mixed up in the rivalries of the english royal families religion playing the most important part in the differences it had armed henry and elizabeth james and charles against her it gave edge to cromwell's sword and it led her into a great effort on behalf of james the second when william of orange crossed the boyne all that followed for a century was symbolized athlone Aughrim, limerick all places of great and fierce contests were decided against her french support of a kind had james but not enough bravery and enthusiasm may win battles but they do not carry through great campaigns once again god marched with the heaviest best fed best armed battalions the great tyrone dying in exile at rome Red Hugh O'Donnell, perishing in Spain in the early days of the seventeenth century, were to prefigure the fighting and dying of half a million Irish warriors on continental soil for a hundred years after the fall of Limerick as the seventeenth century neared its close. During that period, the scattered bands of the rapparees, half-patriots, half-robbers, hiding in mountain fastnesses, dispersing reassembling descending on the english estates for rapine or the killing of objectionables represented the only armed resistance of the irish it was generally futile though picturesque after the close of the revolutionary war in america ireland received a new stimulation the success of the patriots of the irish parliament under grattan backed as they were by one hundred thousand volunteers and one hundred thirty pieces of cannon in freeing irish industry and commerce from their trammels evoked the utmost malignity in england ireland almost at once sprang to prosperity but it was destined to be short-lived a great conspiracy which did not at first show above the surface was set on foot to destroy the irish parliament this is not the place to follow the sinister machinations of the english save to note that they forced both the presbyterians and the catholics of the north into preparations for revolt the society of united irishmen was formed and drew many of the brightest and most cultivated men in ireland into its councils it numbered over seventy thousand adherents in ulster alone the government was alarmed and began a systematic persecution of the peasantry all over ireland english regiments were put at free quarters that is they forced themselves under order into the houses and cabins of the people with demands for bed and board the hapless people were driven to fury brutal murders and barbarous tortures of men and women by the soldiers savage revenges by the peasantry and every form of violent crime all at once prevailed in the lately peaceful valleys prosecutions of united irishmen and executions were many it was all done deliberately to provoke revolt in seventeen hundred ninety eight the revolt came in the greater part of ulster and munster the uprising failed but a great insurrection of the peasantry of wexford shocked the country poorly armed utterly undisciplined without munitions of war but forty thousand strong they literally flung themselves pike in hand on the english regiments sweeping everything before them for a time father john murphy a priest and patriot was one of their leaders but bouchon bagonal harvey was soon their commander-in-chief at one time the rebels dominated the entire county save for a fort in the harbour and a small town or two but it was natural that the commissariat should soon be in difficulties and their ammunition give out the british general lake with an army of twenty thousand men and a moving column of thirteen thousand attacked the rebels on vinegar hill and although the fight was heroic and bloody while it lasted it was soon over and the british army was victorious the rest was retreat dispersal and widespread cruelties and burnings and a long succession of murders the boys of Wexford, under great difficulties had given a great account of themselves dark as was that page of history it has been a glowing lamp to irish disaffection ever since it is the soul of the effort that counts and the disasters do not discredit ninety-eight in irish eyes voltaire in his century of louis the fourteenth made his reflection on the irish soldier out of his limited knowledge of the williamite war in ireland he says the irish whom we have seen such good soldiers in france and spain have always fought poorly at home they had not fought poorly at home it took four hundred years of english effort to complete merely on its face the conquest of ireland and all of that long sweep of the sword of time was a time of battle the irish were fought with every appliance of war backed by the riches of a prospering strongly organized country and impelled persistently by the greed of land and love of mastery but there was not a mountain pass in ireland not a square mile of plain not a river ford scarce a hill that had not been piled high with english dead in that four hundred years at the hands of the irish wielders of sword and spear and pike the irish had not made their environment or their natures and no power on earth could change them over greater england had swept the romans the jutes the saxons the anglos the norsemen and the normans all found lodgment and all went to the making of england well one might say it had been for ireland if she had developed that assimilating power which made her successive conquerors in process of time the feeders of her greatness but the irish would not and could not instead they developed the pride of race that no momentary defeat could down they became inured to battle and dreamt of battle when the peace of an hour was given them when the four kings of ireland were feasted in dublin by king richard the second of england an english chronicler remarked never were men of ruder manners But neither the silken array and golden glitter of Richard's peripatetic court, nor the brave display of his thousand knights and thirty thousand archers, filled them with longing for the one or fear of the other. They went back to their Irish hills and plains and fastnesses as obstinately Irish as ever. They fought well at home, if unfortunately— The wonder being that they continued to fight. The heavens and the earth seemed combined against them. End of section 14